Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy to have Brother Dave Dunlap with us, so we're going to turn the rest of our Bible Instruction Time over to him. Brother Dave, please. Well, good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. And uh, it's always good to be with the believers at Claremont. And so probably uh, a good number heard I was coming, so they decided they... <laughs> Uh, that they should be somewhere else. And uh, <clears throat> we have the same problem uh, on a Sunday like this. We have a number of people away and uh, just taking a little extra time from their Thanksgiving week and uh, some traveling and those kinds of things. Well, you have your Bibles open uh, to Philippians uh, chapter 4. And um, I just want to uh, mention a word of Thanksgiving to some here uh, at Claremont. We had a good walk-worthy weekend. I know that Tyler was there, and a good number of others were there. We had one of our, I would say, pretty good walk-worthy weekends. We had um, about 105 uh, registered. Not all 105 came. I think we had a couple of no-shows, but we had a couple of registrations on, on the way up as they're driving in their car. Uh, up to camp from South Florida, they're registering, which wasn't a really a problem because we had extra space. But uh, it was a, it was a good it was a good weekend, and the teaching was good. The uh, good amount of young people, good amount of new people. I have a whole new crowd of new people. Tyler's on the upper end. He's he's on the way graduating out of uh, Walkworthy. Uh, maybe he'd be a helper someday. But we got a whole crowd of new people that are coming from different places. You know, it's interesting to see uh, someone that, when I first came to Florida, we had a, a weekend, and there was a young man saved at that weekend. It was something that was sponsored by Carolwood. It was at Camp Horizon. Uh, but now, at this last walk worthy, his two children, who are 15 and 16 and a half, 17, they were there. And you're seeing this now. You're seeing people that you knew and they got saved at 18, 19, 20, or whatever in college or late high school. Now they're married, they've got kids, and those kids are 16, 17. And they're starting to come, and uh, it just kind of makes you, makes you feel a little older uh, uh, to know you know both generations of people uh, that are there. And so that's, that's great. Good, good to see that kind of thing. A couple of people have asked about, about Land Lakes Bible Chapel, and we're, we're doing well. Uh, we're seeing the Lord add to our numbers. You know, part of where we live in, and you're in the same kind of situation. When I drove here this morning, I noticed this area is growing. I mean, I know the traffic is growing. Uh, I, I saw probably a real increase in traffic when I, when I drove over here. And, um, but we're seeing that. Our area is growing. Uh, when we first started Atlanta Lakes Bible Chapel, Atlanta Lakes was 5,000 people. So a recent... A recent um, we have a little newspaper for our area, and the Land Lakes Wesley Chapel Lutz area is 110,000 people. 110,000, and we know that. And then we got what we heard about 3 million new people moving to Florida in the last couple of years, and we say they all moved to Land Lakes, <laughs> and you probably say they all moved to Claremont. But we feel, you feel that, don't you? You feel those extra people. Uh, in cars and, and construction and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and we see some of that. Some people have moved to the area 
uh, and we see some people coming, and we are, we are encouraged by that. We're seeing people from other church groups, like Baptist, Baptist Bible Church, those kinds of things. And so we're really uh, kind of encouraged by some of the new ones who've come. Um, we had a, a family uh, come last week, hope they continue to come, from Albania. Immigrants, I guess, been here for a few years, uh, but from Albania. And uh, we have a, a wonderful couple uh, from Argentina. So we're, we're getting really international. I'll tell you a quick story about the Argentina people, and then we'll get into our, our study. Uh, so one Wednesday night, a, a young lady comes, and that's not common. Wednesday night, somebody walks into your chapel. But they said to us, they looked at her website, she came out, and she wondered if we had a Bible study, you know, a Bible teaching, Bible study on Wednesday nights. I said, yes, yes, and uh, we do that and so forth. I said, that's good. So she came. She said, we used to live in Tampa. We moved, bought a house up here. We're a mile away, and, and, and so, so that was all good. And, and so the following week, she brought her husband. They came out. They've been coming Wednesday nights uh, faithfully ever since. <clears throat> and, um, and she began to tell me that he, her and her husband met at Word of Life Argentina. And, uh, and they met there and they got married. And she was from, she was from New Jersey originally, and, uh, but she from a Spanish family and, and so forth. And uh, so they've been coming, Ruben and Trish. But he told me after he came, so then they came on a Sunday. And so I'm trying to explain to him, you know, how we do breaking a bread. I want to kind of just break him into the whole, the whole thing, thinking he's, you know, has never been to a, a church like this. And he said to me, he says, I know all about it. I said, so afterwards, I said, what do you mean? He said, I grew up in assembly in Argentina. And my wife didn't grow up, but she, she's from Calvary Chapel. But we met at Word of Life. And, uh, but he said, I grew up this way all my life. And he said, the moment I came in on a Wednesday night, you know, different culture, different language, different everything, he said, I knew right away that this was the same kind of group that I grew up in. And so they're, they're a wonderful couple. We're really, really happy. And they're bringing people that they know from, a, from an Argentine, uh, you know, connections that they have in the Tampa area. So we're really very, very happy about that. Well, we have our Bibles open to Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And I uh, thank you, for Caesar, for reading that. We want to think, especially at verses 6 and 7. But we first are going to look at a couple of other verses uh, in, this, in this section, and then we're going to come back and look more in depth at verses 6 and 7. But let's bow in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. We thank you for your kindness to us. And uh, we thank you that you promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And, that, uh, and you tell us uh, that you guide us and you lead us and that you give us a peace which passes all understanding, which will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And that uh, we have this relationship with the Lord Jesus that is rich and deep. And as we go through suffering, as we go through difficulties, as we go through the challenges of life, you tell us not to be anxious, uh, but in all our ways to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, Father, we, we thank you for all of these things, and we just would pray you would lead and guide as we look into your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at a couple of things in this, in this, uh, in this chapter. First of all, many Bible scholars and uh, many Bible teachers will, will argue that verses 1 down through verse 9 is about church unity, unity in the church. And you see that clearly in verses 1, uh, 1 through 5. 1 through 5, uh, in, in verse 2, you see these two sisters that are at odds with each other. Verse 2, it says, I beseech Iodia, and I beseech Syntyche. Harry Ironside called them odious and soon touchy. Uh, they, were, they were having a problem with each other. And, um, and it's interesting that the Apostle Paul does not take sides. He says, I beseech Iodia. And he says, I beseech Syntyche. I urge individually, he addresses each of them. It doesn't say one is at fault, the other is at fault. He urges both of them to be of the same mind, that they would come to agreement with each other. And I want to suggest that these two ladies have been serving, laboring with the Lord from the very first time that the Apostle Paul came to the riverside, where there were a number of people who were accustomed to gathering for a prayer, and there were no men there. And he says, he addressed the women that were there. Lydia was there, and then there were other women there. And it's very likely that these are women from the very beginning of that assembly. <clears throat> they labored with Paul. In fact, he says, he says, treat these women who labored with me. They were laborers for a long period of time. And they continued after Paul left to labor. And Paul encourages them to be of one mind. He says to, as he begins to address this subject of unity, he begins and he says in verse 1, My brethren, and I think you could include that of all the sisters, everyone in the local church, he says, Dearly beloved, Notice in this verse, verse 1, twice, he calls them dearly beloved. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, dearly beloved and longed for my joy and my crown, and he ends, my dearly beloved. He already said that in the first part of verse 1, twice. We have a dear Indian brother, and whenever he gets up for breaking the bread, uh, or addresses us usually, he'll, he'll say, he'll say, dearly beloved. That's his, that's his address, dearly beloved. That's, I like that. And I've been saying that a few times, but I don't want to copy him too much. So uh, that's his thing. But that's what he says here. That's one of the really, the really rich addresses that we, we see it over and over in Paul's writings, dearly beloved. You, you notice how often he says, long for, dearly beloved, uh, he, he, he speaks of this real bond, my joy. You believers, the believers here in this local church, you are my joy. You are my crown. I long for you. There's this great bond of love. And then he moves and he begins to speak to them. And then he tells them, tells, uh, tells this person who we don't know exactly who it is. He says, my true yoke fellow help these women. 
is believed that that may be Epaphroditus. We are not sure, but there's someone in that local assembly who is trustworthy. You can go to these women and can encourage them and strengthen them and point them to Christ. He speaks about others. He speaks about rejoicing in the Lord. He speaks, speaks about let your moderation, and that word moderation is the word yielded. Moderation has kind of a uh, more of an older, it's an older translation. The idea of, of knowing you may be right, but yield your rights to someone else. Be yielded. And we find that. Or there's sometimes it's translated your sweet reasonableness, your reasonableness, your yieldedness. Yield in this situation. You may be right in this situation, but yield, yield yourself. That you would have, that your moderation might be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And then drop down with me to verse 8. We'll come back to verse 6 and 7 later. Down to verse 8. He's urging them for unity, urging them to be of one mind, urging them to, to walk together, serve together, worship together, labor together, do all these things together. Because one of the, one of the ways that churches divide, usually they don't divide over doctrinal reasons. Now they, they do at times, but mostly they divide over personality problems. There's a local church, and uh, there's a young couple, and uh, the husband used to put his hand on her shoulder. I don't anybody's doing that now. But their two sisters went to the elders and said, they're showing too much affection. That's inappropriate. That's inappropriate as we're gathering together. You go to those people and tell them they should not do that. Now, what do you think would have happened? Oh, I don't, I don't know exactly. Every situation is different. But if you go to the wife or the husband and tell the, the husband, you're showing too much affection to your wife in church. Some people don't like it. We don't like it. You shouldn't do it. You should stop doing that. Or the wife, you go to the wife and say, you're showing too much affection. You shouldn't hold their hands. You shouldn't put your arm around her. What do you think will happen? So I, I called a friend of mine. I just want to get another perspective, another part of the country, another state. I said, what do you think would happen? He said, Nine, he said I will tell you that 90% chance, I'll go out on a percentage, 90% chance they will leave. They will leave. Now, some people will say to me, well, can't we talk to each other reasonably about situations? Well, maybe. Maybe. But the reason people leave mostly, and mostly there's divisions, is because of personality. Because of those little kinds of things. So when I said to my friend, who said the 90% about the, about the showing personal affection, he said, may their tribe grow. He said, may, they do, may more people do that. That's not something we talk to anybody about. Is it really something we really go up and correct someone about? I, I've been in a lot of chapels, and I, I've seen it a lot of times. If we're going to tell people not to do that, there's going to be a lot of people uh, who we're going to have to talk to. 
So he speaks here. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, let's have the right focus. Let's have our right focus. Let's not focus on the wrong things. Let's focus when we're focusing on the right things, those other things will fall into place. I guarantee eventually that will fall into place all these little difficulties we have with each other. We need to be patient with each, with each other. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are of good report, whatever things are just, whatever pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good report, report if they have virtue, any praise, think on these things. In one commentary, there was a comment made that this is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes on him and these characteristics in him and our focus upon him. And when our focus is upon him, and we come to our local gathering to worship and to learn and to serve, and our focus is on him, then those division areas... Those difficulty will not be as great. We'll be able to, to bear with one another in a much greater, greater way. Then he says in verse 9, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and, your last, uh, and now at the last of your care for me has flourished again, uh, of which you were also mindful, uh, but you lacked opportunity. So you passed on a gift, uh, appreciative that your care has been shown and the passing on this gift that was brought uh, from Philippi down to uh, Paul in Rome uh, from the believers at, at, in the church at Philippi. So he's speaking to them about, uh, about unity and how this is so, so important. But he comes to verses 6 and 7, right in the middle of this. And I think this is a part of the discussion on unity, anxiousness, care. The King James, original King James translation was, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, make your request, let your request be known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. As we go through difficulties, I wonder if this is an exhortation. When we go through difficulties with each other and we're anxious and careful with each other and worry about a particular thing, he says, bring it to the Lord. But I want to pull this out. I want to pull this out and look at it as a separate subject. And, um, and think about the idea of anxiousness. Let me share a story. Now, one of the things, this is not really a story. This is a, a, a moral story, a story with a moral, a story with a lesson in it. Probably not a true story. But one of the things about anxiousness and worry and care is that's a thief. Is that true? When we are overly burdened and worry about something, it's a thief. What's it steal? It steals time because you've spent time worrying and thinking about it. It steals your energy and your strength 
It does just, it just saps you because your mind is wrapped up in this particular thing that, uh, that you're worrying about. Strength, time, energy, uh, all those kinds of things. It, it saps all those kinds of things in our lives. It takes our productivity. If you're at work and you're worrying about some particular thing, it, it saps your productivity, your energy, your strength, your, your labor, your service for God. All those things are stolen. And if you continue to worry about it over a long period of time, it continues to do that over and over and over again. It's, it's a thief. Worry and anxiousness and, uh, and uh, care is a thief. So here's the story. So many years ago, uh, there, was a, there was a woman, and she, was, she would worry, and she would talk to her husband about the fact that one day a burglar would break into the home. And for 10 years, she was worrying about this, and she told her husband about it, and she sometimes couldn't sleep, sometimes just was up at night. Uh, she would talk to him in the morning. They got a burglar. They got a, a, a security system, and they did what they could to make the home more safe, but she still worried, and she worried, and she worried about someone breaking in their house, stealing their possessions, stealing things that are valuable to them, harming them. And she worried and worried and worried and worried about it. One night, after about 10 years, there was a noise downstairs. And the husband said, I'm going to go down and see what the, what the, uh, the noise was. He went downstairs. There's a burglar. He broke into the house. And so when he saw the burglar, he said, this is fantastic. He said, this is really great. He said, would you, be, would you be willing to come upstairs and meet my wife? He said, sure, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. So I go upstairs and meet my wife, and, and uh, they, they meet, and says, he says, honey, finally, here's the burglar. Here's the burglar. Now, the moral of the story is this. The burglar came once after 10 years and stole whatever he was going to steal. I don't know what he had. But the anxiety and the worry, what? It was stealing for 10 years. It steals all that time long. You see, the the thing that she was afraid of would steal once. But worry and anxiousness and what we're talking about here in this passage, it steals over and over and over again. Now, notice something in this passage. Notice verse 7. You've got worry in verse 6, the first part, or anxiousness. But then you have the peace of God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts. That word keep is a military word. It means to have an army in the city, keeping the city, a garrison of soldiers. Keeping your hearts, your emotions, your feelings, that's the idea, your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. You get the peace of God. Look down with me, down at verse 9. A few verses down further, it says, And the God of peace shall be with you. You know, there's three kinds of aspects to peace. We see two of them here. The first one is in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Being justified with God, we have, what? Peace with God. Well, that takes place the moment that you are justified and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were once at enmity with God. We were in opposition with God. Now through faith in the Lord Jesus and now through justification, 
we have this fact. We are at peace with God. We now have a relationship with him. We are now, through the Lord Jesus Christ, able to have access into the holiest, into the presence of God. We're able to come boldly uh, to the throne room of God where we can find mercy and peace uh, in time of need. So there's peace with God. We come into a living relationship, and that's a fact. Now, when we come to this verse, verse 7, this is something that ebbs and flows. The peace of God comes when certain things are true. This is an experience. This is something that we experience in our Christian life. And we experience that when certain things are true, and we see those certain things in verse 6 and part of verse 7. And then we come down a little bit further. In verse 9, he says, The God of peace, this peace of God comes through the God of peace, the one who can bring that peace into our lives. You know, a lot of people are anxious about a lot of things. They're anxious about the quality of, of air they have, so they get air purifiers, and they're, they're worried about the quality of water. And so they get water purification systems, and they get all these different kinds of things. They worry about many, many different kinds of things. And uh, they, I'm told, around this Christmas season, worry and anxiousness increases 64%. Because you're worried about what kind of present you're going to buy. You're worried if you're going to spend enough money. You know, worry about if they forgot someone that you should have bought a present for. You're worried about the travel you have to make because you're going to travel to see family. Um, you worry maybe a little bit of the relationships you have with certain family members when you get together and you, and you uh, meet those people for gatherings. So you have a lot more gatherings at Christmas time. Um, I mean, this is the busiest time of the year. Busiest time of the year for everyone. And it's a, sometimes a hard time, hard time of year. But this passage here, it says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Now this word, this Greek word, marinato, uh, is a word that the Lord Jesus uses. It's not that, that, that Paul uses it only. It's used a number of times, and the Lord Jesus Christ uses it. And when you come to this verse, be anxious for nothing, forget how Caesar read it in his translation. I think he said, uh, be anxious, don't be anxious for anything. Maybe that's how he read it. I forgot how he read it. It was a little bit different than I have. But it says, be anxious, that for nothing word in the original Greek translation means do not be anxious for one single thing. Nothing. Do not be, be, be worried about one single thing. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's a radical thing to say, do not be worried for one single thing. Because we're worried about a lot of things. Everyone. Men are worried. Women are worried. Older people are worried. Younger people are anxious. Everyone is anxious about so many things in life. Because though those things happen in our life, difficulties happen in our lives, that we are anxious. It says in this passage, don't be anxious for one single thing. The Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, he said, don't take care for anything. Not for what you wear or what you will eat or what you will drink. 
And he goes on to speak. He said, you can't add one cubit to your stature by worrying, by caring about these things. The Lord Jesus also said to Mary and Martha, he said to Mary, he said, you are cumbered about. That's the same Greek word. You are worrying, you're anxious about many things. He says that Mary has taken the, the, the greater part. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't serve and you shouldn't serve food, but she was very, very anxious and wrapped up with anxiety over this whole situation. You don't, you could serve and make preparations to serve, but through the anxiety that she had, he is, he is pointing out. We see it over and over again. It is said that anxiety is the number one mental health disorder in the United States today. It used to be depression. Depression used to be the number one, uh, the number one mental health disorder, uh, but now anxiety has overtaken that. Medications are given. Uh, it is said that 40 million people suffer with anxiety, so much so that they go to a doctor, a medical doctor, a medical uh, practitioner, maybe a psychologist, psychiatrist, because of worry 40 million people, 18% of the population. Now, there was a study done uh, by the World Health Organization. It was a mental health, world mental health survey that was done, and they took 14 countries. Some of the countries they, they surveyed were Nigeria, was, uh, was uh, Ukraine, was Lebanon, the United States, some European countries, and they had a number of levels, a number of areas that they... Uh, made, the, made their determination, tried to find out the level uh, of anxiety and depression. Do you know what country was number one in anxiety of those 14 countries? Was it Nigeria, where they have a lot of terrorists in the northern part of Nigeria, a lot of terrorism? Was it Ukraine? Now, this was done in 2018, kind of before. Uh, was it Ukraine? Was it Lebanon? It was the United States. Number one. Now, in 2018, the New York Times put out an article. Put an article uh, about uh, mental health and about anxiety. And they did it. They did research and interviewed a number of people. And they discovered that anxiety increased in the last three decades, so the last 30 years, increased in the United States. By what percentage would you think? By 1,200%. I mean, not 10%, not 13%, not 20%, 1,200%. That's a huge amount. So what do people worry about? The Gallup organization did a poll. They worry about income. They worry, will their income be enough for when they retire? Will they have enough retirement money to take care of whatever needs they have in retirement? for their husband or wife. The second on that list is health care. Will they have the proper health care uh, near the end of their life? And health, greatest concerns they have. And a lot of anxiety and understandable. I would be, you know, get anxious about our health and our income, but also about crime uh, in the top five. Terrorist actions, acts, So these are some of the things people worry about. Now, let's take our Bibles. 
and turn over to see what the Lord Jesus said about worry. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Now, the Apostle Paul says, don't worry about one single thing. The Lord Jesus says something very, very simple, uh, but very, very uh, similar. He says, I say to you, verse 25 of chapter 6, I say to you, do not be anxious. Now, in, in the Greek underlying Greek structure of this verse, in verse 25, it's in an emphatic form. So it means stop. Stop, strong, stop being anxious for your life, what you eat, for what you drink. Very, very strong, emphatic language. Paul says, don't worry about, don't don't be anxious for one single thing. The Lord Jesus says, stop being anxious. These are very difficult things to do. But the Lord challenges us this, challenges us in this. And the Apostle Paul challenges us in this. It must be something very, very important. I said before, it steals. Anxiety steals. You'll steal your energy, you'll steal your strength, you'll steal your vitality, you'll steal your time, you'll steal your productivity. When we are overly occupied and anxious about something, it, it, it controls us. It controls us. And it limits so many other things that we and God wants us to do in our lives. So one of the first things he says, I think, he says, it's unhealthy for life. Lord Jesus says, do not be, stop being anxious for your life. For what you shall eat, what you shall put on, food, isn't your life more important than raiment or food or what you drink or eat. So one of the first things I think he's saying is that it affects our life. It affects our, 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 our health. I have a, a book at home, and you probably have similar kind of books or if you've read that, uh, that anxiety, that our mind affects our, our, our health. It's linked to heart disease, it's linked to high blood pressure, it's linked to diabetes, it's linked to a lot of health concerns in our, in our lives when we, have, uh, when we worry. It's linked to accelerated aging, and it's linked to so many different health concerns in our lives. And the Lord says here, don't be anxious for life. But notice the next verse, verse 26. He says, it's unfitting for a Christian to be worried about these kinds of things. He says in verse 27, he says, it's, it's unbecoming, it's unfitting for the Christian. He says, look at, consider your anxiety. And then he compares and he says, look at the birds. Uh, a little while ago, Faith put uh, my, my wife in the, out our back window by the kitchen and put a bird feeder. And we have cardinals coming, all kinds of birds come. And squirrels come too, but a lot of birds, a lot of birds come, and uh, and uh, they're just singing and, and and making their bird sounds and and just having a great time uh, in life. Never seen a worried bird. 
I've never seen a cardinal worried. I've never seen a larger bird worried. I've never been to a zoo. I've never seen a bird worried. God cares for them. Look what it says in verse 26. He says, Behold, look, fix your, fix your eyes on the birds of the air. They don't plant. They don't gather into barns. They don't... Uh, they don't uh, do these, neither do they reap. They don't gather into barns. They don't do all these things to, to prepare for the future to make sure they've got enough food when it comes winter time. They don't do that. But notice the language here. And I think this is very interesting in verse 27. He doesn't say, their heavenly father takes care of them. Now, you think that would be the language, right? He's speaking about these birds. He's speaking about how they don't sow and they don't reap and they don't gather into barns. You would think it would say, it would say, their heavenly father takes care of them. I think sometimes that's the way we read it, but it doesn't say that. It says, your heavenly father feeds them. He wants them to know in all of our anxiety and all of our worrying, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you, remember that. But all, the, all our anxiety, we need to remember God takes care of us. And he says in this passage, your heavenly father feeds them. To say, and your heavenly father takes care of us and everything in life. It's a great lesson to learn. It's a great, great lesson to learn. And then he says this in verse 26. Are you not much better than they are. This is probably a very radical thing in the extreme environmental uh, environment, you know. Birds, people, are seen by God to be much greater, much more valuable. If he takes care of all the birds and all the animals and all of creation, and we are much valuable, more valuable and more precious than they are, how much more is he going to take care of us? We had, uh, just this past week, we have a a lovely uh, young family. Uh, She's from India and uh, grew up here, I think, most of her life, but she's had a mother in India. Uh, This young lady that's in in our local church, she's pretty young. So her mother's pretty, pretty young. And, uh, she had a heart attack in India, uh, a very severe heart attack. And previous year, her, uh, her father died. Uh, I don't know all the circumstances surrounding her father dying, but he, he died, and then she had a heart attack. Her, her mother did. And she told me past Sunday, and she must have called, and uh, a few days later, she had texted me. She said, I'm, writing, I'm on a plane. I'm flying to India to be with my mother. And so we, we send out uh, prayer requests. We do email prayer requests when things like that come up. We send it out to everybody at the chapel, uh, and friends and family, some other people that are, are not even, they're kind of loosely ch- associated with the chapel. Don't live in the area anymore, but uh, we send it out. And uh, so what was it last night, which was uh, about 7 o'clock in the morning uh, Sunday, uh, she sent me a nice email how... So many good things happened with her mother. Mother's doing much better, getting stronger. She's in her own room. 
and uh, so many uh, things that it looked like going in the wrong direction start going in the right direction. And so she just shared how, how much she really appreciated uh, the prayer and just what God was doing. And I sent it over to Conrad and asked him to share it uh, Sunday morning. Uh, but it's just one of those things that we worry about, but we begin to see God's care. God's care. Prayer was a part of that, but I think God's care was a bigger part of that. God does care for us. There is a time in our lives when the Lord is going to take us. But in between that, there's this true providential. The word providence means God's sovereignty and God's goodness brought together in his, in his dealings with us. And so we see that in this verse. He says God cares for us. But then we see something else. It's unproductive. It's harmful to our lives. It's unbefitting as Christians because look how God takes care of us. And we turn these things over to the Lord and bring them to the Lord. It's unproductive. Which of you, by being anxious, here's that same word used again, can add one cubit? Well, that's a pretty big cubit's from the finger to the elbow. That's 18 inches. He says, how, how, how can you add one cubit to your stature? How can you bring any change? Does worrying over a situation bring change? I don't think it ever brought any change in my life. Worrying about it, being anxious about it, being just wrapped up and being controlled and consumed by something never changed it. Now, I want to read another little, I think, a great little um, uh, study done by a secular psychologist. And uh, he's, uh, his name is Joseph Goway. Uh, he's on YouTube. He's on the Internet. This is where I found it. He's a, he's a researcher. He does research on worry. That's, what, that's his area of medical practice. Uh, and he did an interesting survey. And this comes this whole idea of adding, can you add anything by worry? He discovered this. 85% of the things we worry about don't ever happen. Then he said the 15% of things that do happen, we discovered that though we feared them and worried about them, we found out in them we could handle them. And we learned from them. And we were able to deal with them. And they weren't, they weren't such a great issue that uh, we spend so much time worrying about. And then there's this very small percent of things that do happen. But he says, we worry about the 98% of things that, that don't ever happen or we can handle in our life. And they steal the time and the energy and all the things in our lives. And so the Lord is saying here, what, which of you can, by, be, by being anxious, can add? Most of these things we worry about never will happen. And we do, but then we see, let's go back to our passage, Philippians Philippians chapter 4. Then he tells us what to do. He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, cast all your cares, the same word, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Now, you know what this word anxious, I find it very interesting. The Greek word for anxious, you know, it's made up of two, two Greek words put together. It's kind of like repentance is the same way. Mind, repentance is metanoia, change of mind. 
But the word anxious is put, uh, made up of two different Greek words. Meridzo, which means to tear, to separate, or to divide, and naos, the mind. I kind of like that. That's what, what a great word picture. Anxiety is the tearing of the mind. It's the dividing of the mind. It's the separating of the mind. And so here, back in chapter, chapter 4, he tells us when we do have that, what we're to do. Look at verse 6. He says, but be anxious for not one single thing, but in everything, in everything, we pray. We pray, we, in supplication and thanksgiving, we let your requests be known to God. It, this, is, this is so much like, like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. This is what this is casting by prayer. I have a little bag back there. I bring my Bible and my my uh, some notes and some other things are in there, pens and paper, and I carry that with me when I come here. When I go to a conference, I'm carrying it. I don't carry it all the time. I don't carry it at dinner time. When I go to bed, I don't have it on my shoulder. I don't go to sleep with it. I don't wake up with it. I'm not carrying it all the time. But anxiety is that way, isn't it? You carry it all the time. And there are some things in my life I've carried it all the time. But there's a time where you cast it off. You lay it down. And I think that's what is being said here. He says, by prayer. Now, this is an interesting word, this word prayer. It's used, it's a common word for prayer, but it's used many, many times for worship. And I find the more that we worship, And the more that we pray, the less that we worry. The more we bring worship, more that we bow, and more that we lift the Lord up, the more or the less we are consumed by the worry and the anxiousness that we have. I don't think you can do that. I don't think we can worship the Lord really true, be occupied with the Lord, and at the same time be occupied and consumed by our anxiety. We we can't be uh, engaged in in prayer and worship. And notice what it says in verse, in verse 6. Let everything by prayer and supplication. Now, supplication is, is linked here with this prayer. And supplication means to cry out to God. It's express your, your, your feelings to God. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with expressing your emotions to the Lord. And so your anxiety, you bring that in prayer. You bring that in in. Uh, uh, in, in, in supplication to the Lord. You're crying out to the Lord about whatever the thing and burden that you have in your life. And then he says, in verse 6, with thanksgiving, with bringing worship and thanks to the Lord. And the more we do that, less and less we'll have this anxiety that we have in our lives. But look down to verse 7. The time is about finished, but look down to verse 7. When we do that, you have anxiety in the beginning of verse 6. And as you come to the near the end or the beginning of verse 7, and when you do these things, and the peace of God will become an army to guard the emotions of your life. 
my son has a, I shouldn't tell you his password, you know, but I'll tell you his, I'll tell you his password for his. Password is Psalm 73, verse 25. Do you know that verse, Psalm 73, verse 25? It's, it's not the whole verse right now, it's just a, just a reference. It says this. Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but thee, and there's none on earth that I desire besides thee. He says, my heart, my heart and my uh, life. Yeah, my heart, my life. He said, but you keep my heart and my life. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there's none on earth I desire besides thee. Um, you keep the, my, my heart and my, 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 my flesh and my heart fail, but you are the strength of my heart forever. My flesh, my physical body fails, and my emotional life fails, but you keep, but you, you keep my heart, my soul forever. I'm going to close in a, a second. I want to read a quotation that I came across by, by George Mueller. I'm sure George Mueller had a lot of anxieties in life, taking care of 2,000 orphans in an orphanage and feeding them and caring for them and all, providing teachers for them and housing for them. He says this, Let me see a Christian man or woman who attempts to carry little burdens in his own strength, and I will show you a man or woman who will fail. For we do not have a particle of strength to carry any burdens, great, small or great, we must bring them all to God. And then he says this last part, which I thought was really great. And if we attempt to carry them, we will find that these burdens, small or great, get heavier and heavier as we carry them. I think that's true. The little thing gets heavier and heavier. The big thing gets heavier and heavier. So we bring it to the Lord. And he says, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who is the most, the least anxious person in the Bible? I thought about this. Who, who, who lives out this verse 6 and verse 7 in the Bible? What, what one person? Was it Paul? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I know in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he was pretty worried. He was pretty anxious. Uh, but who do you think was, was the person? I'd like to think it's Daniel. I don't know. Maybe you have your favorite person. But think of Daniel. I, I, I think of this passage where, where King Darius appoints Daniel ahead of all of the rulers and princes in the kingdom. And they begin to conspire against him. And they go to King Darius and say, O oh, king, uh, liveth forever and so forth. Uh, could you sign this decree that no one can request anything of anyone except they, re- except they request it of you? Now, why would he sign that anyway? Why, he'd have a thousand people coming to him all the time asking requests, but he signs it. These detractors, these princes, and these, uh, these leaders, oh, they're just so happy about this. They go and they look for Daniel, and what's Daniel do? Daniel goes to his room, an open window, and, and chapter 6, verse 10, begins to pray. Now, there's three parts of his prayer. Requests. In verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, request, supplication, and thanksgiving. 
That's kind of interesting because those are the same things we have in this passage. And he does that three times a day, and they find Daniel doing it. And they take Daniel and bring him before the king and say, Oh, king, Daniel's been praying to his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not making a request of you. You said you would cast him into a, a den of lions. So Daniel says, that's okay. He didn't seem to be anxious about it. He didn't seem anxious about the decree. He didn't seem anxious about the lions. He didn't seem anxious about what would happen to him. He didn't seem anxious about all those things. Who was the anxious one in that passage? It was Darius. It says Darius says he couldn't sleep all night. He couldn't eat anything. He couldn't drink anything. As soon as it's daytime, he runs over to the, the den of lions and there's Daniel just waking up, had a great night of sleep. Everything was fine. Does it go back to the prayer? Does it go back to, to Daniel just casting all his cares upon the Lord? Who cares for him? Well, let's close in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can cast our cares. Thank you, we can say, whom have I in heaven but thee, and there's none on earth that I desire besides thee. My heart and my flesh fail, but you are the strength of my heart forever. So, Father, may we, in our worry, in our anxiety, that we begin to cast our cares upon you. In the difficulties of a local church, and the division and disunity of a local church, cast all our cares on you in our family life and our health life and our financial situations. Uh, we can cast all our cares on you and not worry, not be anxious for one single thing. So father, we pray you would help us in all of this. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.